Thank you for listening to the Practically Sane Podcast. This is Jeffrey Munn, licensed marriage and family therapist, recovering addict, recovering alcoholic, and uh, general basic human who's just trying to get better one day at a time. Uh, And now also apparently a podcaster. Um, I'm getting used to wearing that hat. It's all very new for me, and I'm constantly working on upgrading my gear and trying to make the podcast sound a little bit better and have a little bit more uh, exciting content. And so uh, I appreciate you out there who are with me now here at the beginning and watching me sort of fumble through this process and get hopefully better at it each time, I think, maybe. Anyway, um, so today I wanted to talk about uh, basically what I see as the biggest issue that we are dealing with right now, which is just the way that we talk to each other. Although it's primarily in social media, through social media and less personal means, but I've seen it in person as well. Uh, But the way that we talk to each other is uh, gross. Is that a good word for it? I mean, that's that's kind of the first word that comes up. It's toxic. It's hostile. It's completely counterproductive. And it's a vicious cycle. I'll explain. Although you've probably witnessed it yourself. If you've spent any time listening to public discourse or you know, looking at arguments online and Facebook and Twitter and, oh God, Twitter. Twitter is just a a, a magical cesspool of toxic conversation, unhealthy, it's just unhealthy in general. The thing is, what I think is primarily fueling this just heinous inability for us to communicate effectively is the fact that People are really, really bad at not knowing something. We do not handle that well at all. We want to have answers. And this is true of humans since the beginning of time, right? I, I, for, I believe it's a big reason that religion was created in the first place. You know, we wanted answers. We wanted to understand the world around us. We wanted to understand people. We wanted to understand our purpose. And so we want to have an understanding we want to know. We don't like not knowing. And as we learn more about the world, about ourselves, as we advance as a civilization, we're learning that there's a lot we don't know and the things that we thought we knew are actually very complicated, nuanced, and worthy of in-depth calm, objective discussion. But we can't do that. We seem to want an easy, quick answer to everything. And unfortunately, what that leads to often, I think, is people believing that they do have the answer, oversimplifying complex topics in their mind and believing that they have an absolute answer. So just to take a current example. Let's talk about what's going on in Afghanistan. Let's not talk about it in too much detail because it's a mess to talk about and it's highly politically charged. But what I'm seeing is both sides of this argument acting like they know the one right answer to this problem and 
anyone on the other side is a moron. Anyone who doesn't agree is stupid and brainwashed and any number of other insults that are thrown out to essentially mean that you are completely obviously wrong. And by saying that, by calling someone, by, by saying that anyone who's wrong must be brainwashed, you're implying that the problem is simple and the answer is obvious. And that's just not the case. For the vast majority of any issue that comes up, at least any issue that's worth talking about. And so what happens, though, is one person feels so confident in their belief system, so confident that they're correct, that it triggers the other person to really want to do the same, sort of as a reactive, you're not going to tell me I'm wrong, you're wrong, you're the idiot. And it just becomes this vicious cycle, this vicious back and forth of completely missing the other person's point, not putting any effort into actually understanding any of the positive aspects of the other person's point, and just pushing back however possible and arguing just for argument's sake. And nothing gets accomplished, nothing gets actually talked about, solved, nothing gets really processed, nothing is understood. It's just two people who are royally pissed off at each other, are convinced that the other one is a moron, and come out even more convinced that they're on the right side of whatever the issue is. So if anything, it's counterproductive. And I think it's a little bit easier to do this on social media because you're not face-to-face -face with a person. You're looking at some abstract icon that represents the person, and you're kind of talking to that, and you've created this person in your mind. And so you're essentially arguing with an imaginary person that you've created in your head based on a couple things that you've read and a little profile picture of, you know, a sunset. And then you create this picture of what this person is, who this person is, how old they are, whatever. And that's who you're arguing with. And it's very impersonal. You don't know them. You don't see their face. You don't know what emotions are behind what they're saying. And so we're making up a lot of stuff also. We're making a lot of assumptions about other people and their motives and what they mean and how they feel and responding to that. And we end up talking past each other. There's no real conversation there. It's so much easier on social media, though. In person, if you see someone in person and you disagree with them, there's more of a desire, at least this has been my experience, there's more of a desire to really get where the other person is coming from. Because you see them as a human. Because there they are. They're right there. It's a person right in front of you. And A, you, you want to avoid any potential physical conflict, which there's no risk of online. So, th you know, that's part of it. So you don't just launch into somebody when you disagree with them and call them an idiot and a moron like you would online. Because you might get punched in the face. So that's one thing that keeps the real-life interactions a little bit more civil. But also I think it's just that you see the other person as a person, and, and our ability to feel empathy kicks in, and we want to actually connect with the person that we're talking to. And in order to do that, you have to understand where they're coming from. You have to really try and get their point of view. There is a 
very well-known logical fallacy that is used often in any argument, but especially online, especially on Facebook and social media and the toxic discourse we're having right now, and that's straw manning, which you may have heard of. Um, for those that don't know what straw manning is, it's essentially arguing against the worst possible version of the other person's argument, right? So if somebody says, hey, I think it's our responsibility as a society to help the poor, and the other person says, oh, so you believe in communism, that's a straw man. That's not what the first person said. They didn't say they believed in communism. They just said that we have a responsibility to provide some help for underprivileged people, people in need. And this kind of stuff happens all the time. And then you have two people misrepresenting each other's arguments, talking past each other, and it escalates until, you know, if it's in person, there's uh, some sort of physical altercation or the people walk away from each other. Or if it's online, they just, you know, call each other idiots and go their separate ways. But again, nothing gets done. And uh, nothing gets accomplished. And straw manning is a lazy way to try and win an argument by creating this straw man of the other person's argument, making it seem overly simplified and stupid, and then knocking the straw man down. And people do this all the time on either side. I've seen it on any side of any given topic. No one political party is more guilty of it than the other, I don't think. Or if, if there is a discrepancy, it's hardly noticeable. I see it happen all over the place. And what we need to do is the opposite of that, which is referred to as steel manning. When you're steel manning someone's argument, you are doing your best to represent exactly what they, were, they are saying, exactly what their argument is accurately and completely. And you're making sure that you understand the other person's argument before you respond to it. Because it's understood that if you respond to the wrong argument... You're not having a discussion. You're just poking at each other and trying to piss each other off. But if you steel man the other person's argument and you respond to it, you are responding to the actual argument and you might actually get some type of valuable interaction out of it. The thing about steel manning, though, is that it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to put your ego aside and really try and understand the other person's point of view accurately. Because it involves challenging yourself to not be reactive and looking at your own understanding of the topic and challenging it. You know, you're really testing by making sure that you're responding to a good argument or at least the best version of the other person's argument. You're really testing your own conviction and your own knowledge of whatever topic is being discussed. And that's hard to do. It's threatening to an extent. It threatens our ego. And there's a chance we could be wrong. And it's also vulnerable. You're saying to the other person, I 
am going to interact with you in good faith and really try and hear you out. I'm not here to fight. I'm not here to try and be right. I'm here to have a discussion. And that's vulnerable because you have to trust that the other person is doing the same thing. But in an instance where two people who are arguing in good faith practice steel-manning each other's arguments, there are some really incredible conversations that take place. And even if neither person in that exchange has their minds changed, anyone who's observing it, which is why I'm such a fan of podcasts, especially long-form podcasts where people really get to discuss things in depth, people who are watching it learn an awful lot. And I would say even if minds aren't changed, the two people involved learn a lot. They learn a lot about the other person. They potentially learn more about the opposing argument and what about it might might have some merit and be worthy of a little bit more consideration. It may motivate them to up their own game when it comes to researching their topic and understanding their own point of view. It's just all around a good thing. One of the problems, though, is that it doesn't, it's not very entertaining. It's not as dramatic. It always makes for good drama when two people just don't listen to each other and scream at each other, you know, real housewives style. That's the kind of stuff that sort of gets addicting and, and we consume a lot of on social media. And the really good interactions, the really good discourse that can happen is um, much more boring. <laughs> it's just not as much fun to watch or listen to. And that's a problem. Yeah, you know, I wish we enjoyed it more. I wish society as a whole had more of a desire to listen to and watch interactions that were healthy and productive rather than watching and listening to interactions that are dramatic and intense and volatile. But, you know, that's a whole other topic I could discuss. We are all... Uh, sort of desensitized to high drama, high intensity. We see it all the time. I think many of us have gotten used to it and sort of expect it. And so when we see interactions or listen to interactions that are not dramatic, for example, watching the news, if you're watching the news and it's not people yelling at each other and being intense and straw manning the other side, it's not as interesting, and we don't maintain our attention as well. And I think that's a problem. And the content creators, the you know news organizations, the journalists who know that people respond to this intense, over-dramatized content are going to take advantage of that because they want good ratings. They want to do well. They want people to watch. And if they don't do it, they know that the other news channels, podcasts, whatever, they know they're going to do it. And so if they stop, they're going to be at a disadvantage. And so it's this arms race between 
different content producers to produce the most intense, addictive, watchable content. And so the media that we watch ends up being inundated with intensity and extremeness <laughs> rather than quality content that helps us grow and learn and become better human beings. All right. Anyway, I appreciate you uh, listening to me ramble about how crappy we are at talking to each other and why I think that is. I'd like to end the podcast with a little question and answer segment. I am much better at question and answer than I am just rambling into a microphone. So please send in questions regarding anything recovery or mental health related. Um, I know today was more of a comment on society at large's mental health, but I think it impacts us all daily. So please send in your questions. I look forward to hearing from you and answering them. And I'm torn as to whether I should have the question and answer section be at the beginning or at the end of the podcast. So your feedback about that is also uh, very much appreciated. So recently I spoke at a secular meeting, a secular recovery meeting, and I was asked a really interesting question there. And essentially the question was, as an atheist, how do you explain some of these coincidences that seem just too crazy to be a matter of chance? And I thought it was a really great question. And what it brought me to immediately was remembering a time that I had been on hallucinogens and realizing just how incredibly powerful the mind is at creating connections and meaning sometimes out of nothing or out of things that aren't necessarily connected. And I believe that we do that far, far more often than we're willing to acknowledge. And this is especially true if you're emotionally invested in something, which is why I think this often happens. For example, after a loved one passes away, you'll hear people talk about having this coincidence where, you know, I was, you know, doing something in the garage and then this thing fell down off of the counter and the thing that fell down was the exact thing that me and, you know, my friend who passed away used to play with or whatever. I'm totally just making something up. And, um, you know, I know that was him telling me that he was there. You, you hear that kind of stuff a lot and it's understandable because there's a strong emotional desire to believe that that's true, to believe that the person who's no longer with you who you had a connection to is still around in some capacity and is still trying to communicate with you. Unfortunately, that emotional charge makes it very easy for you to fool yourself and create meaning and create a connection mentally when there isn't one. And for whatever reason, I've always been much more skeptical when it comes to that. And I do notice that when I have experiences that are similar to that, there is an urge to make something more out of it. There is an urge to be like, wow, this is some bigger, more meaningful thing. This is, you know, 
a higher power or the universe talking to me. I see that. I notice it. But I also know that it's just my mind doing what my mind does, what all our minds do, which is to find patterns and to create meaning. That's what we do. And so I recognize it for what it is, and I don't take it as a reflection of concrete reality. And that's the only place I really have a problem with it. Like, I'm not going to begrudge someone their experience of, you know, making meaning out of something like that. You know, if somebody says that they had an experience and it was meaningful to them, I'm not going to take that away from them. What bothers me is when they take that experience to be proof of some component of reality and then they try and push that on somebody else or convince somebody else that that is true. So, you know, my friend communicated with me from beyond. I know it was him. I know spirits are real. I know heaven is real. And therefore, you know, you should believe that too. That's where I have the problem with it. Don't tell me what to believe. But if you have an experience and you believe it to be more meaningful than it looks on the surface, you're allowed to have that experience. And it can be a very beautiful meaning experience for people. But... I don't think it's necessarily a very good indication of reality. So I hope that answers that question. Um, you know, it, 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 a lot of these topics, especially when it comes to stuff like this, are, are, can really be upsetting to people because this making meaning out of things and, um, you know, this idea that you're connected to something something divine, it can be very soothing and very comforting and nobody wants to lose that. And so when my, you know, skeptical ass comes around and starts, you know, talking about, well, it's not a reflection of reality, it it, it upsets people and that's understandable. Um, but that is the way that I see things and that's the way my mind works. And it's brought me to a place where I uh, find recovery through a secular lens to be something that's that's really important to talk about and to promote. So thank you for listening to the podcast. I look forward to seeing you, hearing you, talking to you all next week. Bye.